the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And like, this isn't real, like it's a movie. There's no way this happened to not only anyone, and then not only in my town, but then to someone I knew and really was like loved and cared for. And just, just how, how? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And Billy is wearing a tiny, tiny little beanie. I am. Makes your head look small. It makes my, which is good because my head is pretty gigantic. So I'm all right with anything. Yeah. Not according to my eyes. I have a very large, large, uh, but like noggin. You also have a large body. So I've never really noticed like Jared has a huge head, even though his body's large, like the head is Mm -hmm. large and not much of a brain going on inside that large. Well, I also hit my head a lot on a lot of things. Mm. I wouldn't, you know, just because being so tall and having a large head and just knocking it into so many things. So uh, the hat is giving me a little bit of comfort at this point. Yeah, just like a nice light concussion. We love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very nice. Um, how's everybody doing? Feeling good. Good. Feeling good. We're ready to record. We've got some good episodes coming up for everybody. So Honestly, feeling good about this. Yeah, we're excited. But before we get into it, Billy, what day is it today? Today is February 9th. And finally, we have a day that is good. It is chocolate day. Oh, hell yes. You got to think that they probably, February 9th, five days before Valentine's Day, they were like, this is the perfect day. This is going to be chocolate day. Let's let them have it. Boom. And it Mm. is chocolate day. Mm. How is it almost Valentine's Day already? That's wild. Well, I felt like January lasted like five years, as it usually does. But as a companion, it's also National Toothache Day. Oh, Mm. Which is a good reminder. You know what? Everybody, have you gotten your dental checkup in the past six months? Because go to the dentist. I feel like a lot of people drop the ball on the dentist because it's never something that's, you know, unless you need a root canal, it's never really that imperative. But a lot of people miss their checkups. No one Mm -hmm. likes a dentist. It's not great. Not great. Any other days, Billy, or is that it? We just have the two competing days. Yeah, those are the two competing days, really. Those are the big ones. So I think we should just jump right in. Let's jump right in. So that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. few subjects we're constantly trying to find answers to here on The First Degree. The first is why. Why do these horrific murders occur, and why are these crimes committed? And what causes a seemingly normal person to take a sharp turn, putting them on a trajectory towards darkness? If you're listening today, you already know that answers to these questions, in any case, is a privilege. And in the place of answers, we're left to ruminate about the complexity of human nature— and wonder who in our lives could be the person to shock us with an unexpected turn of events. 
We begin today's case on July 16th of 2014. And for those of you that are into astrology, this was a Wednesday and under the sign of cancer. The number one song on the radio was Fancy by Iggy Azalea featuring Charlie XCX. And there are other songs on the radio, including Stay With Me by Sam Smith and Rude by Magic. That song is so damn catchy. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and Transformers Age of Extinction were dominating in the box office. And the setting for today's case is Grand Rapids, Michigan. The city is located around 25 miles east of Lake Michigan. And thousands of years ago, the area was occupied by indigenous people associated with the Hopewell culture. Today, the population is just under 200,000, which makes it the second largest city in Michigan, Detroit, of course, being the first. And our first degree for today's case is named Rachel, and she grew up in Grand Rapids. In her formative years, Rachel went to a public elementary school, but by the time sixth grade rolled around, her parents decided to switch things up. We're also Catholic, and so instead of me going to our public school in my town, which was huge, they wanted me to stay at a private school just so that I could learn more like clearly and have more specific one-on-one basically with my teachers. The private school Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary was located in Belmont, a suburb of Grand Rapids. The middle school we went to was in Belmont, Michigan, and it's super suburban, very family friendly. It's a private Catholic school called Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it was a really small school. There was only one class per grade. I think each class had a cap of about 30 people. So at any time, in my experience in middle school, there was anywhere from 10 people in my sixth grade class to 28. I think when I graduated eighth grade, there was I graduated with 15 people maybe. So it was a very small school. Rachel had to ride the bus to school every day. And on her very first day, she met Charlie Oppenier, a seventh grader. So I'm sitting on the bus trying to make friends, and this person just popped their head up from behind me and says, Hey, Rach. And that was Charlie. And then he came, sat next to me, and we got to know each other. So who was this super welcoming kid named Charlie? So here's some background information on him. Charlie was born in South Korea in 1988. And before he was six months old, he was adopted by eager parents, Jerry and Pat Oppenier, a Catholic couple from Michigan. Jerry and Pat already had a daughter named Kristen, and they were so excited to complete their family with Charlie's addition. Besides riding the same bus, Rachel and Charlie were also in the school band together, and she got to know him better and better. Charlie and I got closer as friends because we were in band together, and we both played brass and instruments and the whole middle school band was together and there was like 15 of us. So we spent a lot of time together because we would be in band practice together. Rachel learned that Charlie was into music and he liked learning about cars and he loved soccer, just normal kid stuff. And he was like a lot of the other kids at this religious school. He and his family were devout Catholics. And in addition to attending church every Sunday, he and his family would go to mass on Fridays as well. They were a strong family unit, like a strong Catholic family. His parents were heavily involved in the church, just like really kind, loving, and just seemed like they had a great relationship. And after spending so much time together, it's probably no surprise that Charlie developed a little bit of a crush on Rachel, which was fine by her. For that first year I was at school, he teased me like you do in middle school. 
and he would write me letters and leave them in my locker. And I loved the attention because it was fun. And I was 11 or 12 and thought it was cute that this boy was paying attention to me. The more time Rachel spent with Charlie, the more she observed that Charlie was the kind of guy who always had a smile on his face. He was outgoing and he was social. Rachel also noticed that Charlie was a bit socially awkward. But really now, who wasn't socially awkward in middle school? Charlie was someone who kind of always fell in between different friend groups. Like, he never had a solid group of friends. It was almost like he tried to fit in with each different friend group, but was never invited to the table. He kind of pulled up his own seat and was like, I'm going to try and fit in here or here or here because he really didn't fit into any sort of box. He was very outgoing, very social, and always had a smile on his face. But again, there was something I just couldn't pinpoint it. But again, it wasn't anything that ever stood out to me like, oh, I need to stay away from this person. It was always just kind of, he was like awkward and just didn't really fit in. After middle school, Rachel and Charlie ended up going to two different high schools. So the only times I would see him was I was still in middle school in eighth grade when he was in ninth grade. And when we would perform our band concerts, we would perform those concerts at the high school that he attended. So I would see him there and I would see him at church because my family still attended the church that was attached to the school. Rachel and Charlie continued to see each other frequently until Charlie graduated from high school. And last time Rachel recalled seeing him was during his senior year. He was super bright and sociable. And again, even though he didn't really fit in, he wasn't scared to make connections or scared to do something. He always seemed really motivated. And he felt that way still throughout high school. We make connections and friendships in high school, and we evolve past most of them when we graduate and transition into our adult lives. And even though Rachel and Charlie lost touch after high school, based on who he was, Rachel expected him to go on to do great things. He was smart, he was sweet, he was motivated. But that's not what happened. In fact, Rachel's assumptions and ideas about what would become of Charlie's future would be shattered when his name appeared in headlines in connection with a gruesome double homicide that occurred in 2014. And by this point, Rachel had moved to Los Angeles, and so had a friend of hers from Michigan. I was at my friend's apartment here in L.A. She had actually just moved here, so I was helping her move in. And she was like, oh my gosh, did you hear what happened to Charlie? Rachel hadn't heard what happened to Charlie, but she was about to. And the details were shocking. So, what had become of Charlie Appenier? And how was he involved in this double murder that had been making headlines? Don't worry, we're going to tell you. And you know the drill. We got to go back to the beginning. After Charlie graduated from West Catholic High School in 2007, he went off to Alma College, a private school in Michigan, and he graduated there in 2011. But once he was done with college, it seems like Charlie's life took a turn. In the fall of 2011, shockingly, Charlie was arrested over a domestic violence incident with his girlfriend, Alicia, who was pregnant with their first child. And while we couldn't find any details about this actual incident, we know that in March of 2012, he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor count of domestic violence and was sentenced to 12 months of probation. And apparently, it wasn't the first time Alicia had called the cops on Charlie. They had a volatile relationship and were constantly breaking up and getting back together. 
Not long after Charlie pleaded guilty to the domestic violence charges, Alicia gave birth to their son, who they named Oakley. A few months later, in the summer of 2012, Alicia became pregnant with the couple's second child. Meanwhile, Charlie had a difficult time rising to the occasion of fatherhood. It was reported that he struggled to keep a steady job, and so he often worked for staffing agencies. Not having a steady income with a baby at home and another on the way is obviously incredibly stressful for new parents. Also, Charlie's relationship with his parents was strained. He only saw them once every few weeks, and it was usually when he needed something, like money. Which really isn't terribly uncommon for Charlie's age group. He was 24. He's in that awkward phase between being a child and being an adult. We asked Rachel what she thought about how this guy with so much promise struggled with honing in on a career path. I don't know if it was his relationship with his family or any of the potential mental issues he was struggling with. And it was really shocking because it seemed from the outside looking in that he was really close and and was really supported by his family. And so the fact that he needed help and potentially wasn't getting it or had run out of resources or whatever it was, that is just surprising again from the outside looking in. Growing up in an area like that, my observation is potentially that his mental state was declining and he potentially didn't know how to hold a steady job or how to keep strong relationships with his friends or his partners or his parents. Rachel's theories about what was going on with Charlie are just that, they're theories. Of course, we can't ever really know why people do what they do. Potential behavioral issues or mental health issues are deeply personal matters, and that information isn't always provided to the public following a tragedy. And such was the case here. So the best we can do is speculate on this topic. What we know for sure is that something was definitely wrong. By the summer of 2013, Alicia and Charlie were in the midst of one of their off periods. And despite their rift, the couple welcomed their second child, a daughter named Okara. And at this point, Charlie, at only 24 years old, was the father to two babies, and he was not grown up enough for such huge responsibilities. He didn't have a stable home, and most nights he was couch surfing or sleeping in his car. But these obstacles didn't stop Charlie from pursuing a new relationship. On August 8th, he became Facebook official with a girl that he met at a local fair, a girl named Brooke Slocum, who was 17 years old. And the age of consent in Michigan is 16, so while there was a pretty big age difference between the two, it wasn't illegal in that state. Brooke was from Grand Rapids and lived in Saranac, a small town around 30 minutes east of Grand Rapids proper. Brooke had a lot of interests. She loved sci-fi. She loved fantasy. She loved writing stories and poetry, reading manga, and listening to punk rock. And she liked emo bands like Escape the Fate and A Day to Remember. By all accounts, she was described as caring, selfless, and generous. The type of person who would get birthday money and then spend it on her siblings. And it may or may not be a surprise, but eventually the relationship between 17-year-old Brooke and 24-year-old Charlie also became volatile. And it had this on-again, off-again characteristic. It was revealed that Charlie would sometimes go back to Alicia, his ex-girlfriend, and then cheat on her with Brooke. So he was essentially going back and forth between these two young women. But during the particular window of time we're focusing on, Brooke was the main relationship Charlie was focused on. At the time, Brooke would write about her struggles within this relationship. 
And here's a poem that Brooke wrote in October of that same year. She posted it on DeviantArt, and it read in part, quote, unstable is basically us, me and you. We're up and down and all around, but it can't keep us apart. I'm sorry that I annoy you and talk too loud and walk too slow and complain too much and tell you stories that I already told you. I could go on for hours about my flaws. Okay, so this isn't great. If she's feeling no. as though in, in poetry she has, she has to explain and justify her personality, it sounds like. And apologize for basically everything that she's doing. Yeah, right. So, up. you know, that gives us kind of a snapshot into how she was feeling at that time in that relationship, which isn't great. It's not great. And then in December of 2013, Charlie received the news that he was going to become a father for the third time. Brooke found out that she was pregnant. And when she found out, she dropped out of high school in the midst of her senior year at Saranac High School and moved to Grand Rapids to be with Charlie. And even though she was young and the couple wasn't prepared, it's reported that Brooke actually really wanted a child and was really excited about it. She was even more thrilled when she found out that she was pregnant with a little girl. She decided upon the name Audi Lynn, and she was due in late July or early August of 2014. And it's unclear if Charlie was happy as Brooke was about the baby, but there's no evidence to suggest that he wasn't. While Brooke was excited about the changes in her life, her parents weren't. And this is probably because when Brooke moved out to be with Charlie, they didn't move into a home or an apartment. Brooke moved into his car with Charlie. This is not a great situation for a growing family to be in. And to make matters worse, it's winter. And remember, we're in Michigan, which meant sub-zero temperatures. And because they were low on cash, Brooke and Charlie soon found that they couldn't afford gas to keep the car running all night. While the temperature often dropped below freezing, it was too cold to sleep in the car without the heater. They thought about staying in a motel, but they didn't have the money. Charlie was still struggling to keep a steady job, and Brooke was a minor and she was pregnant. They knew they couldn't risk freezing to death in the car. They had to make some quick cash to afford a motel room. So they decided to start posting on Craigslist. Right, and the couple ended up posting multiple ads. Each one a little different, but the basics were always that Brooke was looking for people to have sex with in exchange for money. And here's an excerpt from one of the ads. Subject, looking for a girlfriend or friends with benefits. Hello, a little about me. I'm white and petite, short brown hair and green eyes. The father of my child and I are sort of involved in this weird open relationship. Brooke's ads were always kind of in code. Things were suggested, but not explicitly said. She wouldn't blatantly admit that she was hoping to engage in sex work. But the men patrolling Craigslist knew what her post really meant. So whenever someone contacted Brooke, Charlie would take her to meet them. And normally they'd rent a motel room or sometimes they'd meet in a car. It was usually Brooke engaging with the patrons or the clients, but sometimes Charlie joined in. Brooke and Charlie made enough money to sleep in warm motel rooms, so they kept making the posts whenever they needed cash. And when our first story, Rachel, heard about Charlie and Brooke posting on Craigslist, she was surprised because the Charlie that she had known was a devout Catholic. You don't want to judge someone's situation. It's not about that. It's just we grew up in a really, really conservative area with conservative mentalities. And you don't hear about things like this happening often, ever, ever in our area, but Again, like, it's not really a stereotypical situation for people who are, I don't know, avid, like, churchgoers and things like that, or at least how they were raised. 
At some point, Brooke and Charlie ended up meeting a guy through Craigslist who let them stay at his place so they could stop paying for motel rooms. And it really seemed like an ideal situation. But the guy ended up making them feel very uncomfortable. So they left, and by the late spring of 2014, they were out on their own yet again. Luckily, at this point, their friend Corey let the couple move in with them and a woman named Mackenzie. Corey later said that he quickly noticed how unhealthy Brooke and Charlie's relationship was. He said, quote, when Charlie was gone, Brooke was very sociable, very loving person. When Charlie came around, especially towards me, it was don't talk to him. Don't look at him. He was very controlling. So hearing what Charlie's friend said and then looking back at Brooke's poem from a few months earlier, this seems to be a pretty unhealthy situation. And Brooke was writing about her flaws that Charlie's pointing out. And it doesn't sound like she even realized how she was being controlled and or how severely she was being controlled. Yeah. I mean, it seems like kind of a quintessential, at least emotionally abusive relationship where she's kind of getting like worn down and worn down to the to the point where she's too scared to just be herself because she's going to upset him in like some way or another. So she like subdues her personality when he's around. And then when he finally leaves, she feels comfortable being her like normal, bubbly, whatever self. And that's really sad. Yeah. She's living an entire life of walking on eggshells. Totally. Okay. So around three weeks after the couple moved in with Corey and Mackenzie, Brooke actually left Charlie and started making plans to move in with her mom for when she had the baby. Brooke's family was excited about this. They really wanted her to leave this relationship and to start fresh. But almost immediately, Brooke rekindled her relationship with Charlie and they got back together. In early July, Brooke and Charlie were back together and again needed money. So on July 2nd, Brooke made a post on Craigslist, like she had many times before. The post read, quote, I need $50 by 3.30 p.m. today. I can pay you back later tonight, but I need gas in some mess quick. Everyone has bronchitis at my house, and I do not want to get sick. I'm eight months pregnant, and my lungs are all squished as it is. If you could help me out, me and my daughter will greatly appreciate it. There's a lot of context we wish we had for this post. We just don't have it. This is what she posted. The bronchitis, the squished lungs, no no clue what this means, but this was the, the ad of that evening. Ten days later, on July 12th, Brooke's post was still up. A user named Mike's Hard messaged her, saying, I can host. What are you thinking? Ten minutes later, Brooke replied. She said, um, well, we're looking for donations if possible. Kind of in a tight spot and we have a baby on the way. As far as the fun goes, there won't be any mail-on-mail action. Mike's Hard said he could swing $120 and give Brooke and Charlie a ride. Brooke then told him, no, we can travel, just can't host is all. When and where would you like to meet up? Mike's hard replied that he'd like to meet outside in a park at around 11.30 p.m. that night. But Brooke wasn't too keen on this idea. She said, hmm, I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble for indecent exposure or anything. I can't go to jail being eight months pregnant. Mike's hard replied, it's cop free. It's a park, but behind it are a lot of woods. No cops at all. It's not my first time there. Brooke and Charlie, desperate for money, agreed to meet him at Giesen Park in Grand Rapids at midnight. At around 11 p.m., the couple left the apartment they shared with Mackenzie. They would never return. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. 
The RealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. In the late evening hours of July 13th, a man and woman parked near Giesen Park were trying to cuddle up to one another. They were getting hot and heavy when all of a sudden, this woman opened her eyes and saw what was probably the most terrifying thing she'd ever seen in her life. She saw a man wearing a white face mask peering into their car. And I don't think the white face mask we wear during the pandemic. I think a scary scream style, whole face white mask. So the couple, they freak out and they drive off immediately before calling the police. So officers showed up and they looked around the area, but the guy in the scary white mask was gone. However, there was what appeared to be an abandoned car parked by a nearby water treatment plant. So we pulled up the Google Earth view of this area and it's relatively sparse. There's lots of stretches of unused land, fields, woods. It looks like the kind of place high schoolers would hang out, like people dump their junk there. Kind of sketchy, desolate area that's being used for nefarious activities. The officers ran the plates on this abandoned car and they found that it hadn't been flagged as stolen or anything like that. So the officers figured that the owner of the car was probably just walking the nearby trails. So they left the area and took their next call. But when officers returned two days later, they found that the car was still there. They tried the door handle and found that the car was unlocked. Inside, officers found various items and paperwork with Brooke and Charlie's names on it. They ran the tags again, and results showed that the car belonged to Charlie. Officers decided to go to his registered address the next morning to make sure that the two people associated with this car were all right. Meanwhile, Charlie and Brooke's roommates, Corey and Mackenzie, were trying to figure out where the couple was as well. At first, they assumed the young couple had simply gone off on an adventure, because that was something they would totally do. Or maybe Charlie and Brooke were with one of their families, Brooke was ready to have a baby after all, so that might have been happening. But they called and texted Charlie and Brooke multiple times, and they never got a reply. So after a few days, they were worried sick. Then, in the early morning hours of July 16th, officers went to Charlie's registered address, which was the home of Charlie's parents, and they hadn't heard from their son at all either. Charlie's parents were now concerned. They didn't see their son very often, but it wasn't like him to just disappear off the face of the earth without replying in any way. Plus, the fact that the police had found their son's car abandoned in such a remote location was definitely cause for concern. So they reported him missing officially. Now that Brooke and Charlie were reported missing, police were prepared to investigate. They headed back to the location of Charlie's abandoned car and started searching for the couple in the nearby wooded area. As they moved through the woods, they looked for anything that could indicate that they'd been in this specific area. And it didn't take long before they caught wind of something. And it was a smell. And as they followed this smell, the officers came to the location on the trail where they observed a flip-flop, condom wrappers, 
a used condom, disposable gloves, and cigarette butts on the ground. And it appeared to the officers that some people had come to the trail for a private place to maybe engage in some type of like a sexual act. A bit further down the trail, officers then observed a pool of dried blood. And they could see a set of drag marks leading into the weeds. So they followed these drag marks, which came to an abrupt stop at a pile of logs. They looked underneath these logs and they made a truly horrific discovery. They found the decapitated body of a man. A man they assumed to be, and was later confirmed, to be that of Charlie Oppenier. Charlie's body didn't show any obvious injuries, so the police operated under the assumption that it must have been a head injury that ended Charlie's life. But they looked around, and the head was nowhere to be found. And the officers searched for it in the immediate area. And they also searched every receptacle within a mile radius of where Charlie's car was left. They called in extra manpower and scoured the fields. They even brought in a drone and cadaver dogs, but to no avail. Beyond the search for Charlie's head is obviously a frantic search for Brooke. She was missing. Officers went to the apartment the couple shared with roommates Corey and Mackenzie. And they told the police that the couple had been missing since July 12th, after they met someone through Craigslist. Their computers were analyzed, and officers quickly uncovered the messages exchanged between user, Mike's Hard, and Brooke. So investigators had a lead, but it would take a second for police to uncover the true identity of this Mike Hard character. Brooke's family and friends were horrified at the news of Charlie's death, and they started searching Gazon Park, hoping to find her unharmed. But there was no sign of Brooke at the park or anywhere else for that matter. So where was she? Then, at around 4.45 p.m. the next day, July 17th, investigators linked Mike's Hard's Gmail account to a cell phone number, which led them to a 31-year-old man named Brady Ostrike, who lived in Grand Rapids. So who is this guy? And most importantly, is this the guy responsible for murdering and decapitating Charlie? And does he have Brooke? It wouldn't take long for police to get their answers, Because on July 17th at around 5 p.m., only 15 minutes after they discovered the identity of Mike's Hard, officers were outside of Brady's house in Grand Rapids. When they showed up, they thought the house was vacant. The grass was overgrown and mail was spilling out of the mailbox. But officers stayed and watched the property anyway. They were supposed to run surveillance while investigators prepared warrants back at the station. At around 8.30 p.m., the prosecution told investigators that there wasn't enough evidence to issue an arrest warrant for Brady. But there was enough to search his place. While investigators ran the search warrant to a judge for a signature, a tactical team was getting ready at the station. They knew how many guns Brady owned, and they needed to be prepared for any situation. At around 9.15 p.m., the officers running surveillance at Brady's house saw his yellow Chevy Cobalt backing out of the driveway. Of course, that's what he drove. The officers attempted to pull Brady over, but he sped off and a chase ensued. Brady didn't get very far before he crashed on an overpass leading to the US-131. But before officers could arrest Brady, he shot and killed himself inside of his car. When officers looked in Brady's trunk, they found a large suitcase. Inside was 18-year-old Brooks Slocum's body. 
She had bruises and red marks on her arms, thigh, forearm, and hips. She'd been strangled with a ligature at some point earlier that day, and her baby did not survive. And this was literally the worst case scenario because up until this point, the hope was that Brooke would be found alive. And this news would devastate the countless people who loved her. Police continued to search the trunk and vehicle and they found a trench shovel, rope, and a tarp. There was also a knife with the name Tina scratched into it. Officers theorized Brady had seen reports about authorities finding Charlie's body and realized that he needed to get rid of Brooke. So he put her in the trunk and was planning on burying her, but didn't know that officers had already identified him and had been watching from his home. The police returned to Brady's house to do a deep dive into this guy, this guy who appeared to be responsible for these two murders. And what officers found inside was the stuff of nightmares. When officers entered Brady's house, it was disgusting. A complete pigsty. There was trash and random shit just scattered everywhere. It took investigators three hellish days to search through the entire house. By the end, they had removed more than 400 items, including a white face mask. Yeah, remember when we told you about that thing? They also found tasers, a cattle prod, handcuffs, a sex slave contract, and suitcases filled with women's clothing and jewelry. Right. And in every room of this home, investigators found sex toys and weapons. We're talking knives, swords, machetes, any style gun you can imagine, all sorts of things. And then posted on the walls of this house were pages of poetry with the word dead scribbled over the top of it. The poetry said things like, pain helps us learn, pleasure helps us forget. However, there was no sign of Charlie's head anywhere at the scene because the police looked. And if you think what they found so far sounds weird, just brace yourselves because it does get worse. In the basement, investigators found a torture chamber. There were chains, sex toys, a dog kennel, a pulley system, and more. There were also multiple surveillance cameras inside of his home. And when they watched this footage, the magnitude of the atrocities perpetrated by this man was realized. This guy had held Brooke captive for days, and he filmed the entire thing, five days total. The footage had captured Brady's movement since July 5th, a week before Brady met Brooke and Charlie in the park. And the July 5th footage showed Brady prepping his chamber. They watched as he bolted down the chains and set up the pulley system, cleaned out the dog kennel, and put a dog bowl and bone inside. He set out women's lingerie on top of the kennel. They watched the footage from July 12th, the night Brady met the couple in the park. At around 11 p.m., he could be seen walking around the basement and bathroom before he left the house. He put a long knife up his sleeve and a knife on the side of his pants. The next time Brady appeared in this footage was hours later, and he didn't return alone. He had Brooke with him. Charlie was nowhere to be seen, and we know why. He was killed and he was left in the park. In this footage, Brooke was handcuffed with her hands behind her back. She was fully clothed and she had a black eye. Law enforcement then watched in horror as Brady put the chain that was bolted to the floor around Brooke and detached her arms to the pulley system so that she could be lifted up. He then hoisted her up so high that she had to stand on her tiptoes. Brady raped and tortured Brooke, and when he was done, he removed her from the pulley and chained her to a stool 
where he sexually assaulted her again. The next day, Brady called into work and told them that he wasn't coming in. Instead, he remained fixated on Brooke and continued to harm and sexually assault her over the next five days. It really, truly is like a horror movie and one of the most awful things I've ever heard. And all of these sickening attacks were caught on video, which is truly is even worse, which meant that investigators had to watch it. And what they witnessed was so traumatizing that a crisis intervention management team was brought on to help them process everything. And these are grizzled law enforcement professionals who are needing therapy through this. I mean, this poor couple did not deserve this. So during the search of Brady's home, police found other evidence besides the surveillance footage. They found another video in the form of a DVD. The video was Brooke, and she was speaking to the camera, and it had been filmed on day three of being held captive. In the video, Brooke said that around a week or two prior, she and Brady agreed to meet up so Brooke could have a true abduction, kidnapping, and ransom type of experience. Brooke said the plan was for her to meet Brady at the park. He would abduct her and hold her for ransom, and then Charlie would come in and save her by paying the ransom in Monopoly money. Brooke continued and said that she was supposed to be with Brady for a week, but she was having contractions, so they were going to end the quote-unquote experience early. Okay, so it's very clear what this is. Brady's pathetic attempt at making Brooke appear as a willing participant in what happened to her. The police were not fooled by this, and during the search of Brady's home, they also found a large map of the U.S. with multiple locations around the country. And these pins were in these locations in various cities. So what do these pushpins indicate exactly? And of course, their fear and what they're wondering is, could this guy be a serial killer? And given what they're seeing in this basement and given the depths of this guy's depravity, it isn't a stretch for them at this point to think that this is a possibility. The problem was their suspect had taken his own life. So they need to do a deep dive into this guy's background to get any answers. And as all this was unfolding, the media caught wind of some of the horrific details associated with this shocking double murder. And this is when our first degree Rachel heard the news. When I first found out, I didn't know all the details of the case. I just heard he was murdered, but they couldn't find his head. That right there is like, first off, so shocking and insane. And like you say, it feels like something that can never happen to anyone you know or whatever, or in this area where everyone's so seemingly, we're so like safe and brought up in this bubble. It was just kind of like blow after blow. It's like, First you hear he's been murdered, then you hear his girlfriend's been murdered, then you hear his girlfriend was eight months pregnant, then you hear this whole, like, sexual element. It was like, oh, my gosh, who is this person? What happened? And I'm like, this isn't real. Like, it's a movie. There's no way this happened to not only anyone, and then not only in my town, but then to someone I knew and really loved and cared for and just just how how you know and it's so sad and I feel awful for his family I can't imagine what that would feel like and having another grandchild on the way that gets murdered as well is just so gut-wrenching as the families and friends of Brooke and Charlie were reeling with this shocking loss police were still digging deep into the background of Brady who was this guy, and what possibly led him to become a sadistic killer? He was born into a large and blended family on December 4th, 1982. 
His parents had numerous children from previous relationships. Brady was the only child that they had had together. He went back and forth between homeschooling and private school. He went to church and he went on mission trips. After high school, Brady became a lineman with a utility company, which meant he got to travel all over the state and country. And we're looking at a photo of Brady right now. He is... Creepy. He's got a very dated haircut. He's also got uh, the literal serial killer glasses on. Like the Jeffrey Dahmer serial like killer the, the Coke aviator yeah. glasses. Like Coke bottle aviators. That's the biggest thing. They're aviators, but they're aviators that are square and very large. So the, the feel, it's just why anybody, you know, they're, they're like Dwight Schrute's glasses times yeah. two. And then I also found this other picture of him that he is holding like a camcorder. Obviously, he liked that. But his glasses in this, it's very um, stalker's web sort of a vibe they are that he's really got going t- on. Teeny tiny glasses for sure. And I think it's ironic that, you know, this is obviously like a selfie with this camcorder, but he obviously has some sort of fixation on recording stuff. Yeah. Very, very creepy. So police learned that in the early 2000s, Brady had been engaged to a Canadian woman named Tina that he met at a church event. Remember Tina that was carved into that knife? The relationship was long distance, and he eventually spent $30,000 on an engagement ring for her. He proposed, and they were supposed to get married in 2008. At the time, Brady continued to live with roommates in Grand Rapids. They would reveal to police that Brady spent most of his time playing video games and Dungeons and Dragons. He also had tons of weapons, and he always carried guns on him. He had swords, knives, whips, chains, all around the house that he shared with these guys. They also revealed that Brady wouldn't shower. He would pee in water bottles and leave those bottles around the house, which is so gross. Disgusting. Oh my God. And he left trash everywhere in his wake. So it's no surprise that these roommates were disturbed by this behavior and ultimately moved out. Yeah, pretty disgusting. So in 2008, just a month before the wedding, Tina and Brady broke up. This is not totally shocking to anybody. And the reason for the breakup depends on who you ask. So Tina said that they had an amicable split, but Brady said that she up and left him, stole all of his money from his bank account and his 401k, which I don't know you could even do that. Brady's behavior escalated following the split. He started talking about taking his own life and told friends that he wished he could kill people with his bare hands. Years later, in 2012, Brady reportedly had a female roommate who ended up moving out after he told her he was possibly suffering from schizophrenia and having, quote, dark thoughts about killing her. And from there, things didn't get better. It's at this point that he started perusing Craigslist and exchanging messages with women. The police actually tracked down a woman named Melissa, who Brady connected with in 2014. And she had a insane story to share with them. She said that after meeting on Craigslist and exchanging messages with Brady, he picked her up. And he had a strange request. He wanted to put her in a suitcase in the trunk of his car. But thinking this was foreplay or a kink thing, she agreed. They arrived at Brady's, he opened the suitcase, And then he sprayed appliance air duster into her face, which made her lightheaded. Once they were in the basement, Brady asked if she wanted to be his sex slave. She said yes and signed a sex slave contract. 
After that, he did many of the things that police watched him do to Brooke in the surveillance footage they uncovered. Melissa was kept in the small dog kennel. What went on between Melissa and Brady began as consensual, but things went way too far when they got in an argument and Brady whipped her a hundred times with a leather belt. He also tased her for 20 seconds. Melissa ultimately escaped the home and called 911. She told authorities what Brady had done to her, but she said that she didn't want to press charges since it was part of a sex slave contract. Yeah, and it's scary. It does seem as though he's escalating a bit. Oh my gosh, it's terrifying. So scary. And as more and more of these awful details about Brady and what he had done to innocent people were made public, the shockwaves continued to devastate the community. And when it was revealed that Charlie and Brooke met Brady on Craigslist, the victim blaming began. And to be clear, how Brooke and Charlie decided to make money in desperate times did not make them less deserving of living and shouldn't subject them to mockery or victim blaming in death. It's really disturbing that people are compelled to do that, you know, after tragedies like this. And Brady, like so many psychopaths, he preyed on two people in a vulnerable situation. You know, we're dealing with a pregnant teenager you know, for God's sake, like it's no victim blaming. These two, you know, do not deserve that. There was just so much judgment in the comments about these people and that they like put themselves in this situation because it was Craigslist and things like that. A lot of victim blaming based on these circumstances. And that just really rubs me the wrong way because you never know what people are going through and you should never judge someone for whatever their personal life interests are, if they're not harming anyone. When people started shaming Brooke, her loved ones actually came to her defense and said that she was sex trafficked by Charlie. Brooke's roommates, Mackenzie, said that Charlie was essentially Brooke's pimp. And people actually came to Charlie's defense. His ex and the mother of his two kids, Alicia, claimed that Brooke had posted on Craigslist long before getting with Charlie. The police have never commented on these allegations of sex trafficking. And the truth is, no matter the circumstances under which they got into sex work, it doesn't matter. Charlie and Brooke were the victims of an incredibly deranged man. The police knew who killed Brooke and Charlie. What they didn't know is why he did it. And those who knew Brady couldn't offer any answers. And his sisters describe Brady as the kind of guy who would do anything for you. They couldn't understand his violent descent at all. And the police spoke with Brady's ex-fiancee, Tina. She was so shocked to hear what Brady had done. And she said her relationship with Brady had been happy and normal. And she even referred to him in that conversation as a teddy bear. That's so crazy. So strange that you can be two different people like that. Like, so shocking. So police learned that Brady was corresponding with many more women online, which is terrifying. In fact, Brady had plans to fly a woman to see him from Las Vegas days after he killed Brooke. But luckily for this woman, Brady was preoccupied with Brooke, so he ended up flaking on her. That is crazy. I mean, just like escaping death. Uh, He was just, you know, he was just ready to do this. And had Brooke fallen through and not showed up. I'm sure this woman... That was probably his plan the whole time, and that kind of, like, fell into his lap. You know what I mean? Exactly. And there are probably... I'm sure when they opened up his his computer and and his phone, he had been talking to 50 or 60 other people. Oh, I'm sure. And easily they could have been 
one of the, one of the victims. So investigators continued trying to find a motive for Brady's actions. Obviously, Brady was fucked up, but he'd never killed before. So why now? And why Brooke and Charlie? After two years of unsuccessfully answering these questions, investigators closed the case. Police Chief James Carmody said, quote, we always try to find a reason for someone acting like this, but sometimes there isn't one. Many officers felt like Brady was just plain evil, and we'll never know anything else because Brady avoided taking any responsibility. You're already a, a huge piece of garbage and a coward, and now you're not going to be held accountable for your actions at all. And there's really no... I mean, how can there ever be closure in this situation? But there's no closure about, like, why you did what you did, what led to this, and that feels super unresolved. And people will never get answers, and I think that's really sad. Luckily, in the last few years, one major question has been answered. On March 26th of 2019, a person was out looking for deer antlers in the area of Alpine Township in Kent County, when they found a human skull. Dental records were used to identify the skull as belonging to Charlie. Finally, five years after the fact, Charlie's remains were complete. His head was found 20 miles north of the park where Charlie's body had been found. And trauma to the skull suggested that Charlie had been shot once in the head. Just like Europeans say all the time, it happens everywhere. Nobody's really safe. No one's an exception to the rule. You know, it doesn't matter like how you grew up or where you grew up. You could always find yourself in some sort of scary situation. And there's predators and horrible people everywhere. I literally thought I grew up in just safest, most bubble town that was like Stepford Wives vibe, you know, and a few miles down in the city is a whole different world that I had no idea existed where things like this can happen to you. So more of the story, keep your wits about you. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Rachel for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, no story is too small or too insignificant. Actually, those are the stories that we like to tell. You can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all the time and stick around, not stick around. Check back tomorrow for a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not not that that close. close. We did it together. Happy chocolate day. Happy Happy toothache day. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are Oxygen, Freep, WZZM13, New York Daily News, M Live. Wood TV, WWLP, WWMT, Daily Mail, CBC, Fox 17, Battle Creek Inquirer, Santa Maria Times, The New York Post, Crimes and Consequences Podcast, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.